0: Hi, my name is Ben Atkinson, and welcome to season three of the Functional Health Podcast. I'm trained in both biomedical science and nutrition, and I firmly believe that a holistic and functional approach to health is fundamental to our well being. I interview some of the leading voices in nutrition and lifestyle medicine, from practitioners to professors everyone in between with this podcast i will share with you their stories their expertise and their advice shedding light on the industry from each of their perspectives and providing you with simple tips and tricks to help improve your health from today this week i'm delighted to share with you my conversation with kimberly wilson Kimberly is a chartered psychologist and visiting lecturer working in a private practice in London. She uses a whole body mental health approach to help improve a patient's health from all angles. Today we are going to talk about nutritional psychiatry. I hope you enjoy it. So, without further ado, Kimberly, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you very, very much for having me.
0: So, Kimberly, You are a charted psychologist with a philosophy of whole body mental health. Mm -hmm. What do you mean by that?
1: So my basic tenet, my basic foundation is that we need to get away from this dualism, the separation of of the mind from the body, of the brain from the body. And in large part, psychiatry and psychology are the main guilty party for that. Um, For a very, very long time, we've kind of looked at the brain as completely distinct from the body. And therefore, anything that kind of goes wrong in the brain, whether that's psychiatric illness or neurodegenerative diseases, is treated only in uh, brain-targeted treatments, whether that's talking therapy or psychotropic medications. And what that's kind of done is really relegated the, the body to just this meat suit that carries your brain around but doesn't really have any intrinsic worth and we know now there is a wealth of research that says that's just not true and what happens in the body of course has a profound effect on what happens in the mind and so I don't think you can get a full and comprehensive treatment of the mind whether that's something like depression or something like alzheimer's disease dementia without fully looking at what's happening in the body at the same time fantastic
0: and i think although the evidence is is certainly mounting not many people maybe realize that what they can what they eat and how they are living might have be influencing how they feel so hmm. when when did your shift um, or when did you shift to thinking this way
1: well actually for me it coincided with my original training so I did my undergrad in psychology and then I did a four year postgrad in um counseling psychology and at the same time as I, was a, I as I was just uh qualifying the the first research in nutritional psychiatry is really coming out so the first studies that demonstrated a relationship and at that time it was just a correlation Mm -hmm. but they were demonstrating a relationship between diet quality and risk of depression in women and as a psychologist depression really is you know it's almost the bread and butter of what psychologists do depression is the leading cause of disability worldwide so we spend a lot of time in training looking at the uh, causes of depression the theoretical philosophies of what causes depression whether you're thinking about early trauma or stress or lifestyle factors um and so it's something that's obviously right at the forefront of a psychologist's mind but also at that same time um, I did some of my first placements and my first professional roles in prisons and there was some research that was done in the UK and then at the same time replicated a little bit later replicated in um uh I think in the Netherlands, which found and which showed in RCT. So these were randomized control trials. There was a controlled placebo group and an active group which took male prisoners and gave them micronutrient supplementation. So vitamins, minerals and omega-3s. And they found across both of these studies that there was a 30% reduction in violence and aggression. Wow. And yeah, right. And when you work in prisons, one of the biggest risk factors, one of the biggest issues in terms of security is self harm and violence. So people cutting themselves or harming themselves, head banging, or people getting into fights. Um, and that's one of the most expensive parts of uh, running a prison. And it's obviously one of the riskiest parts in terms of uh, the clinical and medical care of offenders and so i was re- reading this research i was running a therapy service in what was was then europe's largest women's prison and although women only make up a very very small part of the prison estate in the uk uh so i think at the time you know i, I can't even remember the numbers but it's kind of less than five percent of all prisoners were women they make up over half of the self-harm cases so women self-harm in prisons at a rate which is astronomically higher than men do and so these issues of aggression self-harm violence were really pertinent and I was really thinking well if if we've got this research if we've got RCT which is considered the gold standard Mm -hmm. for clinical research why are we not implementing it and and the nutrition and the food in prisons at least at that time was pretty atrocious and so I thought if we've got this research why are we not a supporting our our clients, our offenders in, in terms of rehabilitation, but also making things safer for the staff and for the public when people are eventually released back into the community. Um, but nothing mm. came of it. You know, I would ask these questions and nothing would come of it. And, and then I left prison, I stopped working in prisons and I decided, well, well, fine, you know, if I can't do anything there, I can at least take this into, into, I can take this information and integrate it into my treatment. So at least my clients can have the benefit of this research, which is very compelling, it's very very robust, but for some reason isn't, well it is now, but it certainly at that time wasn't really trickling down into, into patient care.
0: Because it seems like a relatively cheap and simple intervention to have such a profound effect.
1: This is the really extraordinary thing. And Julia Rutledge, who's, uh, she's out in uh, New Zealand, has done so much work on the use of micronutrient supplementation in, in managing stress, In recovery from um, disasters and I spoke to her there was a recent conference on nutritional psychiatry here and she was uh, the final plenary speaker and we spoke afterwards and we spoke about the uh, offender supplementation research and she was saying she wanted to do something similar and she was told and she said I could quote her on this she said that she was told it was too dangerous to do that kind of of research um, just because of the legal and social justice implications. So wow. it's a really, it's, and I'm not one for conspiracy theories, but you can understand how how it's, it would be very, very inconvenient in terms of of, uh, of legal proceedings if people were getting off of their criminal charges by with claims of, of malnutrition. But if we're thinking globally about reducing things like violence, like offending, then maybe we need to start thinking a, a bit earlier down the line down the trajectory about how we can have a much more integrated social approach to these issues
0: so what are the key things there because it's like the vitamins and minerals which are implicated in maybe people being more violent are there certain deficiencies which you see quite often which are linked to this or is it a little bit more ambiguous
1: mm-hmm. it is a little bit more ambiguous and there's still lots of research that needs to be done and there are I mean, the things that lead to, if we're talking about offending in, in particular, there, obviously there's a very, very long and complex trajectory for someone to to end up in prison. And for example, the biggest risk factor for someone ending up in prison is having had a parent go to prison while they were a child. So, you know, there's a big part of this which is social factors and that will include poverty, it will include food insecurity, it will include economic status, education, whether someone has been... Um, excluded from school or whether they've had to um, go to a special school because they were unable unable to be in mainstream school, all of these factors play a role but you know if we understand that nutrition is crucial for brain development and that the brain continues to develop until you know at least the front part of the brain the the prefrontal cortex is continuing to develop into your mid-20s then we should be thinking that nutrition is really important across this entire stage. And if there are a group of people who, as well as having very difficult and adverse life experiences, are not getting the right nutrients for healthy brain development, then I think that's a bigger social issue and that's something that needs to be thought about. Um, One of the other correlations with uh, prisons in particular is that there is a very, very, very high incidence of psychiatric illness and offending. So somewhere in the region of 70 75% of people in prisons have at least two diagnosable mental health conditions. And one of the things that turns up quite a lot for example in first episode psychosis are deficiencies in certain micronutrients, zinc, um, magnesium and particularly the omega-3 fatty acids. So yeah. At the moment, those are correlations and there's lots of work still being done across the world in different populations on whether micronutrient supplementation can help reduce risk or whether if you can use it in first episode, it can reduce your risk of ending up with a severe mental illness. So that's still happening. But yeah, you're absolutely right that this is these are very cheap interventions they're certainly much cheaper than prison they're certainly much cheaper than you know social work and probation and all of these things and it's early intervention work and I think if you could one of my kind of fantasies is if we could put that case across to you know the MOJ or the criminal justice system then maybe we could start to get some ministers on board with this idea and maybe we could start affecting policy because policy is really where the changes are going to come yes
0: and just to add to what you were saying before i remember reading a case study and it's only a case study but this was a few years back and it was about a woman who tried electroconvulsive therapy i think she was manic depressive and this kind of spiraled into she had multiple different psychiatric disorders and she became catatonic and she had a vitamin b12 injection she was found to be they couldn't um, monitor how much b12 she had in her body because it was so low and she came out of this um kind of catatonic state through a vitamin b12 injection and she had vastly reduced (sighs) symptoms and it was absolutely unbelievable so what you're saying isn't new to me but i think it's Mm. profound i wasn't aware of the prison data either
1: yeah I can send you the links it's really fascinating work. Yeah.
0: I would love to I would love to read it. And <laughs> um, one thing that you mentioned at the start of the conversation was the link mm. the, you said that depression um uh, causes disability it was one of the leading causes of disability. Mm. Um
1: what do you mean by that? Cuz people
0: might be thinking so, disabled is that mobility or
1: sure sure so in terms of the kind of World Health Organization um, definition, mm-hmm. it's the amount of time and the amount of, quality of lo- lo- the amount of quality of life that's lost to the illness. So the amount of time people spend off work or the loss of um, quality time spent with their children or their families or in relationships, the la- loss of satisfaction through other daily activities, the associated thematic issues. So often depression is associated with physical pain and physical um, disabilities, migraines, headache, backaches, um, chronic pain, obviously not all of these things are always caused by depression, but there's a very high comorbidity. um, And that we do know that sometimes stress and depression are expressed through the body and somatic complaints. So, so globally, across the world, and we add it all together people are suffering more in terms of this everyday loss of functions from depression than they are for example from other disorders like heart disease diabetes cancer
0: that is absolutely incredible and i I imagine a lot of people including myself weren't aware of that statistic Mm. and in your practice do you find that nutrient deficiencies or eating habits exacerbate issues related to mental health
1: um Yes, I, it, and that's, it's slightly anecdotal because although I can, I have the option to uh, offer blood tests mm-hmm. um, for an associated clinic, most people, when you look at their food diary, you don't need to, you you can assume. So some people will come in and, I mean, I had one person, for example, who in two days had only eaten two chocolate muffins and they were quite severely, severely depressed. And we thought, you know, irrespective of what else is happening, this is not going to help. Yes. Um. And so it's really about helping people understand that fundamentally your brain is an organ and like your heart is an organ and it needs proper nutrition to function properly, your brain needs proper nutrition to function properly. Mm -hmm. And it's just kind of putting it on a par with other organs in the body, but also to understand that your brain is the most important organ in your body. And therefore we should be thinking much more about what happens when the organ that's responsible for personality, for mood, for decision making, for rational thoughts, for morality, isn't functioning properly, then what we can expect is that we will get impairments in those factors. And so it's really just trying to kind of make that clear, like, if you're not providing your brain with what it needs to do all of these things, it's not going to be able to do these things properly.
0: I suppose when you break it down that way, it makes perfect sense.
1: It's just common sense,
0: right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, one thing which I wanted to touch upon is like the prevalence of these conditions, mental health conditions in general, but also depression and anxiety. They seem mm-hmm. to be rising or certainly people are speaking about them much more than ever. Do you mm-hmm. Have you identified key contributors to this that maybe come up quite a lot in clinic or in general?
1: Well, this is kind of the billion dollar question, right? Because we've had effective in inverted commas treatments since 1950s right Mm -hmm. the the first um antidepressants were developed in the 1950s and if we've had effective treatments for 60 70 years why are the rates of illness increasing and this is what's caused a real rethink in the way that we think about depression And its causes. So the the main hypothesis is a serotonin hypothesis. And it says, well, you're depressed because of an imbalance in the amount of serotonin in your brain, it disappears too quickly, or there isn't enough being produced. And therefore, if we can get enough serotonin flushing around, then your mood will improve. Um, the issue with that is that the, the SSRIs, the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor mm-hmm. um, medications, which are supposed to increase the amount of available serotonin in the brain, only work for about a third of people. And sometimes, even for those people, not much better than placebo. So our most effective medications aren't working as well as we need them to be. And we're still getting rising rates of depression, of depression um diagnoses and we're getting rising rates of treatment resistant depression so depression that doesn't isn't affected by you know three four five different medications and so the rethink has really been um, and looking at the idea of systemic and uh, neuroinflammation in the body and how that might be one of the kind of biological drivers of depression and this seems to be the hypothesis that has a much better um, predictive quality so you can look at it and say well if that's the case we would predict that if we can bring down inflammation if we can shift this biological feature then we will get a reduction in depression and that seems to be what's happening and so kind of come back to your question it's actually it seems to be that there are more drivers in our daily lifestyles of this kind of immune response this inflammation and it's when this gets out of whack, that the kind of very delicate tissue and function of the brain gets affected, and it, that comes out as depressive symptoms. Does that all make sense? I feel like I was talking for ages.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely not. I, th- I think that makes perfect sense. You, the crux of it is that um, um, inflammation is a more predictive indicator of whether someone mm-hmm. may develop depression, and indeed, if they are depressed, then the chemical imbalance, which I think was the the original hypothesis
1: yeah and and interestingly um with the the inflammatory hypothesis the new developing hypothesis Mm -hmm. actually predicts it can explain the serotonin hypothesis so what we know for example is when your body is in a this state of chronic inflammation then the precursors tell me if i'm getting too technical but the Mm -hmm. precursors to serotonin so serotonin your happy hormone is uh, produced through the synthesis of uh, tryptophan. So and tryptophan is an amino acid. It's an essential amino acid that we get from food. Um, but when your body is in a state of inflammation, that tryptophan is kind of rerouted. It's taken away from the production of serotonin and it's shunted into a pathway co- for the production of a compound called kynurenine or kynurenic ki- acid. And kynurenine is neurotoxic. It's not good for your brain. And so you get two factors. So in, when you're in a state of chronic inflammation, you get two things that happen. First of all, you don't have enough tryptophan to produce serotonin. So there's less serotonin availability in the first place. So you have lower serotonin production. Mm-hmm. But secondly, you now have this additional insult of kynurenine. So as well as having less serotonin, your brain is now having to deal with chimeranine. And so that gives us a much clearer understanding of what might be happening in the brain of depression in that, you know, in that subset of, of patients who might be also affected by uh, inflammation. Because we're not clear at the moment whether it's everyone. Again, it seems to be about, be about a third of people where inflammation is, is strongly implicated and that it might be a lesser factor for other people but the research is still kind of ongoing
0: there just from what you were saying before just linking it back to what you've just said the Mm. the inflammatory hypothesis it would also explain why the introduction of omega-3s in those prison studies would work Mm. because (laughs) omega-3s increase those (laughs) increase those special (laughs) molecules in the brain prostaglandins type 1 and 3 which are Mm -hmm. anti-inflammatory so yeah it seems to all fit in quite nicely Um, it
1: gives us a very nice model yeah
0: so like in terms of interventions and i realize everyone's an individual and i don't like asking this question too much (laughs) but are there common ones which you see is everyone got too many omega-6s in their diet and too little omega-3s and therefore an easy intervention would be increasing the intake of omega-3s in someone's diet to kind of dampen the inflammation Mm. is there is an intervention which you use quite commonly
1: um so always to be very cautious and to kind of stick with what absolutely research says and and what the research i think is really indicating is the role of the gut microbiome Mm -hmm. um i'm a big fan of omega-3s generally just because those um, those fatty acids particularly dha form the cellular membrane of your brain cells and you can only get them from food sources. So if you're not taking them in through food, and most people aren't eating their one or two um, portions of oily fish a week. Um, so most people's brains are probably a little bit depleted. So I'm always a, a fan of you know people thinking about increasing their intake of oily fish or perhaps considering supplementation. But the other factor, and I, and, and I think probably what's going to be I think my prediction as is that we're going to see much much more that the health of the brain is associated with the health of the gut, and that's because so much of our immune function and so much of what leads or or mitigates this experience of of chronic inflammation happens in and around the gut and so if your're essentially if your gut microbiome if your gut microbiome isn't happy then then i think that's going to be one of the major issues in terms of of monitoring health so in that sense it would be fiber omega-3s and polyphenols so making sure that people are getting their 30 grams of fiber every day and people most people are really woefully short on that you know most people aren't eating beans and legumes three or four times a week they're mostly not eating whole grains starchy vegetables um you know the alliums garlic onions leeks. it and so actually it might be something and i spoke to professor john Cryan about this and he's one of the leaders in in gut microbiome research you know and it might simply be that in the future we're we're able to give targeted prebiotics or targeted fibers to help with psychiatric diagnoses so i usually try to encourage people for whom it's relevant to think about fiber um as well as you know all of the other stuff that you hear every day of the week oily fish fruits and vegetables plenty of water and and keep down um you know try to reduce things like excess alcohol excess free sugars stuff like that
0: people might be listening and thinking hang on are you saying my digestive system
1: <laughs> can be
0: linked to my mental health and the way i feel right is, is there I is there an example um where i guess you could link that i guess when people are nervous just before an exam quite often mm-hmm. they run to into the bathroom but that's the head influencing the gut right and um, also the way you think influence your digestion
1: yes well the link goes both directions and so mm-hmm. and the link the, the relationship is both direct and indirect right so the direct link is the vagus nerve so this long wandering nerve that starts at the kind of base of your brain goes and goes throughout the body so it loops in under your throat and towards the ears goes down through the back of the neck connects into the lungs the heart the liver the spleen the stomach and finishes down in the gut and so if you think about this nerve as a motorway with 10 lanes actually eight or seven or eight of those lanes are going upwards from the gut to the brain so the, the brain is always receiving information from the body of what's happening in the body, and in particular the gut. Um, there's lots of really, really intriguing research now, for example, about the idea that some quite serious neurodegenerative disorders like Parkinson's disease and multiple sclerosis might actually originate in the gut through this vagus nerve connection. So it might start as you know something like... Um, a molecule that's associated with bse either its metabolites or the, the molecule itself travelling through this nerve getting into the brain where it shouldn't be sparking inflammation and starting that disease and so that research is still at the moment in preclinical stage mm-hmm. um and observational data but it's it's very very compelling so people for example who have had their vagus nerve cut have lower rates of parkinson's disease for example so you know we have some speculative information around that. Um, some of the other slightly more convincing stuff is around the RCTs that have shown that when you improve diet, so trials like Healthy Med and the SMILES trial, mm-hmm. but when you improve diet, you get a reduction and sometimes a remission in depression in people who already had a diagnosis of depression and who were already on treatment. Um, and that's linked to things, for example, like possibly so in the smiles for example they didn't um, test inflammation but what we know the gut microbiome can do is to reduce compounds like serotonin um, vitamins short-chain fatty acids that can travel to the brain in the bloodstream or you know communicate with the brain through the vagus nerve or affect the immune system so lots of different ways and that all of these mechanisms can affect the health of the brain and as i say that i know that you know i've spoken to colleagues who find all of this very very difficult and that's because we're so steeped in the idea that the brain and body is separate and but what i just invite people to do is just stick with the research you know stay close to the rcts read the research and try to you know try to get away from the idea that your brain is just this kind of separate brain in a jar that's unaffected by what's happening in the body that just doesn't make sense
0: just going back to what you were saying before, the idea of diet affecting the brain, you, you spoke about certain fibers affecting certain bacteria it, yeah. which in the gut, which um, make up our microbiome, which can affect the way we feel. And even okay. though this was preliminary evidence, the idea that certain diets can have benefit, that by very definition, these would have a range of different polyphenols and antioxidants from food, mm-hmm. as well as prebiotics. So you would imagine that would influence the gut anyway. But mm-hmm. what about probiotics? This is mm-hmm. something which comes up quite a lot. And you've got, I'm not sure it's a fad, but people are becoming more aware of kind of kombucha, kefir, sauerkraut, kimchi.
1: Mm. Do they
0: have merit in this field?
1: Um, so the research on probiotic foods is still kind of out. The most uh, researched one is kefir. Um, and it, it seems, yes, maybe, possibly. It probably doesn't harm you, Um and um, the issue actually sometimes with sauerkraut is that it is quite salty. So um, that has separate, separate implications. But the general consensus with um, probiotics, whether it's probiotic foods or supplementations, is that it's almost like uh, if your gut is like this village and a carnival comes through town or to- tourists come through town and they spend their money... That they they don't stick around, but the gut the village benefits from their presence as they pass through town. So they don't stick around. They don't stay and set up their own businesses, but they can can have a positive effect as they move through. Um, but what we at the moment it doesn't seem like probiotics are going to be any good for people who are already healthy.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: They might be beneficial for people who have you know who who are already unwell particularly in IBS, it seems that it might be beneficial there. And again, IBS, um, Irritable Bowel Syndrome, is a disorder which is very, very comorbid with depression and anxiety. Um, so possibly probiotics for IBS. The, John Crine and Ted Dinan and his team are still working on you know, understanding perhaps which types of probiotics might be good for particular uh, issues. I think there was some work that came out of Australia that showed that if you gave mothers a probiotic supplement during the last, uh, I think it's the last six months of pregnancy and the first six months after childbirth, they had a reduced risk of uh, postnatal depression, um, which was fascinating. I think I've got that on my Instagram somewhere. I can um, so that it, for everyone yeah, in the show notes. Um, so that stuff is still ongoing. So at, as yet, I guess it's for most people we don't know um, if you enjoy the taste of probiotic foods then go for it if you don't don't eat anything that you don't like that's just silly um (laughs) and and actually again probiotics don't make sense filling yourself up with um these live bacteria doesn't make sense unless they've got something to eat so it's really again about focusing on fiber and making sure you've got a good range of varied fibers in your diet on a regular basis
0: I would just wanted to go back the probiotics when no. you say that mothers were giving it a probiotic I understand no. that pro- probiotics within foods although they may not um, populate the gut or populate the gut microbiome as you said they don't mm-hmm. stick around even mm-hmm. though they've got benefits they have like a range of different bacteria within them mm. various different strains in mm-hmm. probiotic formulas they're normally very limited and I know you can buy just one strain of mm. a, a probiotic was that particular study or are studies in general looking at one specific bacteria and how it benefits or they- a bit
1: of, uh it's a bit of both so um often so again these are clinical dose ones so these aren't supplements that people are buying off the shelf in yes. their local health food store are the clinical grade um with you know billions and billions of colony forming units so um that's the first thing to say these aren't available uh, for consumers uh, and, and I think there's a mixture. So some people are doing kind of multi-strain probiotics. Some, uh, one of the strains, Lactobacillus rhamnosus, seems to have the best research in terms, I think, of managing anxiety. And there are some um, consumer products that do contain it. I think, what's the, the liquid one? Simprove uh, contains rhamnosus. Um, other <laughs> probiotics are available. Um <laughs> so but I, again i don't know if that i haven't checked how much the ones that are available in that kind of product compare to the amounts that were given in the clinical trial so again the, the jury's still out the research still needs to be done um and i think we it would be prudent again to learn making sure you're eating plenty of uh, fiber rich foods and then just waiting for the research to be completed
0: Yes. And I think what's empowering is that even though we might not be able to have access to these um, bacteria, which are trialed in studies right now, but the Mm -hmm. fact that we can influence our own gut microbiome just through the foods that we eat through fibers, Mm -hmm. like you said, the range of different foods, multiple different colors of vegetables and fruits um, Mm -hmm. for the polyphenols, and then maybe taking probiotics for those people who are experiencing anxiety or depression might be beneficial.
1: Might be, yeah. And actually, one of the interesting things. So it just reminded me about um, kefir is that it's it's probably the food with the most abundant diversity of um, microbiome strains. So where, for example, your average yogurt um, has maybe three or four different strains of um, lactobacillus and um, bifidobacterium, and maybe even the new kind of kefir yogurts or the, the consumer ones have 12 or 13, a homebrew kefir where you make it yourself with kefir grains has over 40 different strains. So if you're eating that on a regular basis, you know, that's, that's going to be helping to add to that gut microbiome diversity. And what we know as yet, we don't know a huge amount, but what we know as yet or what we believe as yet is that diversity is what's associated with good health
0: yes right fantastic and when you said kefir because there's so many mm. different ones out on the market <laughs> now it's not just dairy it's coconut uh, there's mm-hmm. water there's etc what is the research what or what is the research telling us is the most beneficial is it the milk or
1: so the milk is the most well researched and the non-dairy kefirs are still they're very new to the market so i don't mm-hmm. think much research has been done at them at the moment so i don't know as yet whether they are as abundant you know maybe they have you know, the higher diversity, but the the homebrew dairy kefir is the one that's got the most research at the moment. I actually, and that seems to be, yeah,
0: sorry. No, no, absolutely fine. I actually used to, I don't know why I'm telling you this, but I'm going to, I actually <laughs> used to ferment, um, oh, well, I used to make kefir, like it was goat milk kefir. You buy mm. raw goat milk and ferment it on the counter during whilst I was at university. And people would just be like, what are you what? doing? Because you it, when you make coffee, it, it like separates, right? So you can see like mm. a clear liquid because the lactic acid it creates as well as the, the milk on the top. And it just looks mm. horrendous. It does. But it's mm. apparently very good for you. So... <laughs>
1: Yeah, no, I, I still, I brew, I've got a fermentation station, but basically <laughs> I've got it all going on. So I've got kombucha, sauerkraut, kefir and water kefir, so dairy and water kefir. Oh, um, I'm jealous. And if you catch me on a good day, I'll, I'll be making some kimchi as well. So, yeah, try to, I try to kind of practice what I preach and stick, as I say, stick to where I think the research is and, and just making sure that there's plenty of, of diversity in what I eat.
0: Yeah, I think that's the best way forward for sure. Mm. So, hang on, I've lost the the spot. (laughs) I kind of went off in so many tangents and I've made so many arrows on the bit of paper that I'm writing on that I can't quite keep track. (laughs) Um, So we've talked about things which can benefit your gut. Now I'm going to mention the dreaded word for some people and that
1: Mm -hmm. is gluten.
0: So... (laughs) gluten and wheat seem to be one of those controversial topics where people say it causes a lot of harm it harms their mental health they don't feel good after they eat it and quite often and this is anecdotal but quite Mm. often my friends maybe experience like a gut issue and then they experience maybe a cognitive issue now i don't know whether it's the pain which is causing the issue in terms of cognition and mental health or whether they're inexplicably linked I was wondering mm-hmm. what your thoughts are on it. Because I know it's a controversial topic.
1: Yeah, like how long have you got, friend? <laughs> um, <laughs> I know, I should have
0: started the conversation oh. with this, really.
1: <laughs> All right. So now what's really interesting about the gluten conversation is, well, it's it's super complex. So I think the first thing to say is the, the general overriding common sense uh, comment is, you know, because you sometimes hear that gluten is terrible for every gut. It's abrasive for everyone. And I just, I would like to say, if that were true, then the nation of Italy wouldn't exist, right? <laughs> <The> <laughs> high gluten consuming nations wouldn't exist, or they have these astronomically high levels of psychiatric illness and, um, and they just don't. So we'll, you know, we'll put that out to a kind of common sense test um, and, and then kind of get down into the details. So, Below that is the issue of uh, gluten sensitivity. And there are lots and lots of studies that have demonstrated now that more people think they are sensitive to gluten than actually are. And that actually what happens is that a lot of the rhetoric, whether it's on social media, whether it's certain books or, you know, um, influencers who have... Told you that gluten is terrible for you and therefore bread is terrible for you, and mm. all of these other foods um, actually creates what's called a nocebo effect, which is that you expect a negative reaction. And even when you're not presented with that food, you still get a negative reaction. So they gave a group of people um, who, who had self diagnosed with gluten sensitivity a cereal bar. Half the people were told that oh yes it's gluten containing and half were told that it wasn't um i think actually i'm confusing a couple of trials but people the cereal bar didn't have any gluten but people still said that they got gut symptoms and they still experienced pain and so we can that's the nocebo effect that's you thinking that you're going to get a negative effect and actually you get what you're looking for so there's the placebo and there's the 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 nocebo effect Below that, of course, there are people with um, you know actual issues with gluten, so uh, celiac disease and non-celiac gluten sensitivity. and these are diagnosable. they are testable. and these people absolutely, you know celiac disease, when people with celiacs ha- get have gluten, there's damage to the gut, the villi kind of erode. they can't absorb nutrients. It's bad news. So absolutely, for those people, Gluten is a real danger. What's really interesting in terms of mental health is that people with celiac disease do have a higher risk of psychiatric illness.
0: Right. Okay.
1: And there are some case studies, I think, reaching back to the 1920s in terms of psychosis and what's called um, gluten or celiac psychosis. And there's and this is, I want to be really specific and I want to kind of be really clear that I'm talking about a very, very, very small subset of the population. So we're talking about 1% of the population is at risk or develops schizophrenia and then maybe, the research is indicating that maybe 30% of that 1% does seem to be affected by gluten, that their psychiatric symptoms do seem to be affected by gluten and that for these people, this very small subset of people, a reduction or an elimination of gluten from the diet can support their symptoms. Now, that is for diagnosis by, you know, the the clinical care team and specialist dieticians. But what it means is that most people are absolutely fine. And what we think happens with these people isn't just that, you know, gluten hurts them, it's that we think they probably had some digestive illness early in life, which is then, that coincides also with a risk factor. So they already have a genetic risk factor. Mm -hmm. Then they get an illness early in life that that either damages or shifts the gut microbiome or triggers the immune system. And then it's this combination of genetic risk factor and environmental trigger that then makes these, these particular group of people susceptible to this response to gluten. Yes. So... It's very very specific, um, and you know, I I'm pretty sure I eat gluten every single day, and I'm someone who obviously cares a lot about my brain, and I want to be making sure that I'm I'm giving my brain the best it can, and and I eat gluten most days of the week, gluten containing foods, so yeah, I'm saying maybe for a very tiny subset of people, but for most people, gluten is fine, and gluten containing foods if they're whole grains, so if we're thinking whole grain barley and whole grain wheat foods are an important source of cereal fiber and cereal fibers are associated with a good strong gut uh, diverse gut microbiome and better health
0: okay if someone does have celiac though and they want to improve Mm -hmm. their gut microbiome what kind of foods would they use to to build their gut microbiome up if they can't take in these grains
1: so you've been looking at other sources of fiber right so i mean talk to your specialist dietitian your celiac dietitian yes um, but the other fruits, vegetables, legumes. Um, but yeah, specialist dietitian would be able to advise people on that. I don't want to step on any toes.
0: <laughs> Very well uh, conserved answer there. <laughs> <laughs> One thing which came up before, and I got asked before I came on this podcast with you, mm. is that anxiety can actually strike at any time for people who are susceptible to it. Mm. So, what can we do? in our daily lives to make sure that we have a greater
1: resilience to anxiety? Sure. So, I mean, the very therapist response is understanding really what anxiety is for that person and what the triggers are. So for example, some people are just, I think constitutionally more sensitive and what one person might be resilient to another person might have a more anxious response to. Um. Sometimes also I think it's worth saying some people mislabel anxiety for just a normal everyday kind of nervousness that you would expect. So if you're going up to kind of give a talk, I wouldn't call that anxiety in a clinical sense, but you know, normal everyday nerves. Um, so sometimes it's about helping people to just accept an, a normal level of you know, nervousness and worry. Uh, but of course, some people do really, really struggle with anxiety, and some of the best kind of resilience or protective factors are is, a- is exercise, actually. So, getting regular physical activity is one of the most robust ways to help reduce your experience of anxiety. And again, you know, people find that a little bit strange. Why should exercise help? But there are lots of different biological mechanisms that come out of exercise that can really help support the brain but also the idea that essentially again your body is one integrated system and so if you're building resilience in one system it also affects another so physical exercise physical activity helps to build physiological resilience but also your brain benefits from that um so not just physiologically in terms of You know, being able to tolerate more stress because that's what exercise does for you. It helps you to improve your capacity to manage stress. But the other psychological traits, like kind of sticking with something, pushing through discomfort, you know, tolerating um, a not very nice situation. So if you're in a, a difficult workout and you need to finish it, then there's the psychological mechanisms, and we think those things generalize psychologically to help people better manage anxiety as as a response to exercise
0: very eloquently put thanks
1: (laughs) you're welcome
0: um so there's a few more questions um so what is the most beneficial health change that you have made to your life and why
1: Hmm. um i don't know if i can name just one because i you know kind of it's almost over the years and so i've been Looking at this stuff for 15 years now, it's been kind of incremental changes. Um, I maybe being co- more consistent with exercise, possibly. So, even if I so just before I came onto this call, I'd kind of run over to the gym, quickly got in, you know, exactly a 30 minute workout, which is kind of the minimum that your brain likes, it's, it's the dose that your brain likes. Um, and, and came back in time for the call, and that's really because there's so much evidence around physical activity for protecting the brain, not just from things like depression, anxiety, but from the the newest, biggest killer in the UK, which is Alzheimer's disease. And so I I try to be, and I get you know very very busy, and sometimes I can't fit in as much movement as I would like, and my job is sedentary and, and all of that stuff, but. Even if it's just 20 minutes, 30 minutes, I do try to get a little bit of movement in as often as possible.
0: How, how do you think that holistic psychology, by the way that you practice it, can become more integrated into healthcare?
1: So I think that has to happen at a few levels. First of all, uh, psychologists psychologists don't get... We talk about GPs and doctors not getting enough nutritional training. Psychologists don't get any. <laughs> you know and we take a very very theoretical uh approach uh, a philosophical approach to the brain so i separately did my training in nutrition because i realized how crucial this was and in my training then focused on the um nutrition for the brain and particularly in relation to neurodegenerative disorders so first of all trainings postgraduate trainings in psychology need to shift to include nutrition I, and i don't know if health psychology does maybe it does um but certainly clinical and counseling psychology need to get on board with the idea that the brain is an organ and if our job is to help people protect their brains which i think if you're talking about mental health that's exactly what we're doing then we need to at least have a working understanding of the impact of lifestyle factors on that nutrition movement sleep stress management relationships and it's the reason that i developed a CPD course for psychologists called, you know, things that psychologists would know about these lifestyle factors. So um, I think it has to come through the training because then it will trickle down into frontline patient treatment. Um, But I think it also needs to come higher up in terms of policy. So when a woman discovers that she's pregnant, um, when she's the family being told about how to protect and look after the child's mental health, when schools are thinking about protecting child the children's mental health, because 70% of psychiatric disorders arrive by the age of 25, you know, these, are, these happen in early life, we mm-hmm. need to be thinking about how do we make sure that at a population level, people are getting what they need as much as possible to protect their mental and brain health. And that's... You know that, that's a bigger question than just tooling up psychologists that's perhaps a program of supplementation for the most at-risk families it's perhaps breakfast clubs at schools where they give out a multivitamin i don't know I mean, these are kind of ideas off the top of my head but it's it's thinking at a much broader community population level about how do we make sure that most children and adolescents are getting enough of the nutrients that help to protect their brains long-term. And that this is a preventative long-term social strategy. So that as a nation, we're having less incidents of people becoming ill because psychiatric and psychological diseases destroy lives. And if we're serious about reducing the risk, then we need to start intervening much, much earlier in the life trajectory
0: and lastly can you please give the listeners three tips although i know you've given many already (laughs) to help improve their health and well-being from today
1: um yes so the first one i guess is probably the obvious one um which is around nutrition so make sure you're getting your fiber your omega-3s and your polyphenols so everything that i've mentioned already before your oily fish your brightly colored fruits and vegetables your berries and try to consume those as much as possible there was a a great study that showed that um in older people who ate uh, a serving which is about a kind of salad bowl size of leafy greens every day in older age had brains that looked and behaved 11 years younger than their peers so yeah like it's a big deal eat your greens um kind of all that stuff that (laughs) <laughs> you were told to do when you were a kid. <laughs> um, and I think, and I've mentioned exercise, but I think the other things that people really underestimate in terms of mental health is emotional care. So when we're looking at diagnosing someone's uh, psychological illness, psychiatric disorder, so often what we're talking about is emotional health. Are they responding emotionally in an appropriate way? Are they? laughing in the right places or are they laughing in in the wrong places are they chronically low in mood are they chronically anxious so actually your emotions are crucial to your mental health but we have this very very dismissive attitude to emotional health and emotions are seen as soft touch and kind of surplus to requirements and all that matters is the rational kind of hyper um hyper rational brain Mm -hmm. and that's the only thing that we need to think about so I always, always encourage people to just just everyday emotional management, check in with yourself. I very often suggest people do a one-line-a-day diary, a little journal where they just check in. It's one line. It's less than a minute a day, and so that you just get into the habit of checking in with yourself, seeing how you feel, and that increased level of awareness will help you to recognize earlier when your mood starts to slip, and that will allow you to intervene earlier before you get to a chronic or severe stage um, of, of mental illness. And then linked to that, so my tip number three, is relationships. So in spite of everything that I've said about nutrition and exercise and sleep or whatever, actually the biggest factors in people's life satisfaction and their well-being, and sometimes even their longevity, is the quality of their social relationships. And I think we can neglect those way, way, way too much in pursuit of success, and ambition and being seen to be doing all the things all the time by everyone um, and we can end up ne- neglecting our friendships and so I would really encourage people to you know the same way that you schedule your workouts or your PT to schedule your relationships make sure that you're getting a regular catch-up with friends in person as much as possible because that's the stuff that's really going to see you through.
0: So nutrition, journaling and laughter, and then building and maintaining and nurturing those relationships. Yes. Those are three wonderful, wonderful tips. Thank you so, so much. My pleasure. So I've heard that you're writing a new book or that you've just finished writing one, which includes...
1: (laughs) Sorry, I'm very excited.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But it includes much more detailed information about exactly what we were just talking about, plus much, 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 much more. <laughs> Can you tell the listeners a little bit more about it?
1: Yes. In, in fact, this is the first time that I've kind of been asked, this is my first book interview. This is an exclusive. <laughs> um, yes. Yeah, sorry, I should be very serious. The publisher would be very upset. I'm kind of being very silly about it. No, um, it's called How to Build a Healthy Brain, and it's exactly this. So what I do is to really... I go through what I call the the major players, the two biggest factors in protecting your brain health long term. So it's not just about what can you do to improve your mood in the next week, but I really also want you to think about how can I reduce my risk of these growing health concerns like dementia, um, Alzheimer's disease, and, and basically just kind of... Um, mci so mild cognitive impairment impairment how do i reduce my risk of these e- of these diseases that are associated with aging but actually aren't an inevitable part of aging and and that's one of the things that i want to get across that it's not just inevitable that as you get older you become forgetful you aren't as organized as you were before that you can't keep people's names in mind we shouldn't expect that as a normal consequence of aging and that there are things that we can do that can reduce our risk so in the book I go through what I call the two major players um, that affect this so neurogenesis which is the creation um, and protection the survival of new brain cells and inflammation so that process which seems we think to damage the brain and all of the lifestyle factors are so all the ones that have good evidence that you can implement most of them straight away to help nudge things in your favor So I go through all of that stuff. So sleep, nutrition, um, breathing is one of them. So activation of the vagus nerve and how that affects stress management, Um, different types of movement. I've got a section on why yoga is actually one of the most comprehensive interventions you can use for your mental health, Um, but also emotional management. So how do you understand and deal with big emotions that people struggle with, like anger and shame and envy. How do you improve your relationships? How do you protect the health of the next generation? I talked to policy makers, the whole shebang. So I really wanted to make a very, very comprehensive guide, a Bible almost for how to protect your brain health throughout your life. Um, And I'm really, really hoping that you know people start to get the idea that there are things you can do preventative and protective strategies to look after your brain health it's not just about physical health you know and in the same way that we do think okay if I, i if i exercise i can reduce my risk of heart disease i want people to be thinking oh if i do these things i can reduce my risk of these psychiatric illnesses as well
0: fantastic sounds like a wonderful comprehensive book so for everyone i will link to that in the show notes.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Kimberly, it's been a huge pleasure to have you on the show. I thoroughly enjoyed speaking to you about whole body approach to psychology. But before you go, can you please mm. tell the listeners where they can find you and what projects you have coming up?
1: Sure thing. So I am food and psych pretty much everywhere. So it's F-O-O-D-A-N-D-P-S-Y-C-H on Instagram, which is where I do most of my stuff, to be honest, um, Twitter and Facebook. Facebook is pretty silent. So just come see me on Instagram. Um, And I have a monthly book club where we look at the psychological themes of various books, which is live on Instagram once a month. And coming up, I guess, mostly at the moment, uh, I'm just focusing on the book, which is going to be published in March. So preparation for the book, and also working on some workshops, So that training that I did for psychologists, I also do for the public, And I'm working on also some other workshops with a colleague of mine around relationships with food. So everything pretty much in that food and psychology bracket, um, I'm trying to help people to better understand and to have a better relationship with food for themselves, but also to help understand what's going on in their minds and protect their mental health as well.
0: Just to clarify, everything that we spoke about today, I'll put in the show notes and a link to Kimberly's book, website, and social media. Kimberly, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show, and I do hope that we can speak again soon.
1: This has been fantastic. Thank you so much for having me. Bye.
0: Thank you for listening to the Functional Health Podcast. You can find links to everything that we talked about today in the show notes. If you have a second, please consider leaving a five-star rating on iTunes. It really does make a huge difference and helps get this valuable information out and reach more people. Don't forget to subscribe so you can stay up to date and know whenever I release a new episode. You can connect with us on Instagram, Facebook or our website and all questions are welcome. As always thanks to Josh Aurelia for the editing and Alan Harper for his support.